Welcome to the podcast of Follow Baptist Church. Our vision and mission is to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged and inspired by this message. For more information on Follow Church, you can visit our website at www.followchurch.com.au. Reading our scripture today is found in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5. The Bible says this, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders, all of you. Close yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. For your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for somebody or someone rather to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings and the grace uh, rather and the God of all grace who called you uh, to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong firm and steadfast to him be the power forever and ever amen this is the word of the Lord thank you Ray this week I read an article on a website and it was titled The 15 Greatest Leaders of All Time. Uh, number one was Mahatma Gandhi, number two was Nelson Mandela, number three was Martin Luther King Jr., number four was Abraham Lincoln, and number five was Mao Zedong. The first five achieved some amazing feats in their life and were clearly uh, great people who did some wonderful things. But when I got to number six, it was glaringly obvious that leadership can be a, a very positive thing but it can be a not-so-positive thing as well. It can be constructive, but it can also be destructive. Number six on the list was a guy called Adolf Hitler, who was a terrible man, but a very persuasive, powerful, and convincing leader. So I pondered the list, I thought to myself, I wonder if there's anyone they might have left out of this list. And then I thought of a guy who could have perhaps made the list. He was born in the back box of civilization uh, in a town where people said Nobody good will come, nothing good will come from that place. He grew up in a typical Jewish family, worked as a tradesman to make ends meet. In many ways, he lived an ordinary life, but at the age of 30, he led what can only be called a revolution. This man took a hold of a bunch of nobodies, ordinary, unschooled men, and he simply asked them to follow him. And at that one request, they dropped everything, their career, their finances, their inheritance, their family, their reputation. They dropped the whole lot and they simply went and followed this man. And for the next three years, 
He sowed into their lives and he molded them and shaped them. And he went around teaching and preaching as one who had incredible authority. These ordinary men, when they followed this extraordinary man, turned the world upside down through a radical, countercultural, alternate reality that didn't dominate with power like the Roman Empire that they lived within, but they actually served and led with self-sacrificial love. This man ultimately gave his life away on a cross to save the very, pers- the very people that put him there in the first place. The Bible says this small band of followers turned the world upside down and history would confirm that to be the case. In today's service, we dedicated some of our children to this man. We didn't dedicate them to Gandhi. We didn't dedicate them to Abraham Lincoln. We dedicated them to Jesus. We know him as Lord and Saviour. And billions of people have followed him. Many have given their lives for him and continue to do so right around the world. And many of his, testify, uh, many of his followers testify that he has saved them from their sins. He has conquered the power of death and he has given them new life. They will say that he has changed them from the inside out. He has healed them. He's given them hope for the future and he is returning for his people. The question I have for you this morning is simply this. Has any leader in human history had the impact on humanity that Jesus Christ has? I don't think so. And yet this man didn't make the top 15. And you know what? As I was thinking about that, at first it annoyed me. And then after a while, it actually pleased me. Because I thought if he was on that list, it would be the ultimate insult to have the creator of all things lumped on a list with those that he created. As Christians, we have many great role models of leadership, both Christian and non-Christian, courageous men and women who have gone before us. But above all that, we have the ultimate leader who we look to for the perfect model of what leadership should look like. In the Gospels, we see the life of this extraordinary leader. And through his word, we have instruction on what Christian leadership should look like. And that's why here at Follow Baptist Church, we're unashamed to say that our vision is very simple. Our vision is Jesus. He's the one we look to. He's the one we need. He's the one we follow. Our mission is to follow Jesus in our community for his glory. And as we finish our series today on the letter of 1 Peter, Peter now addresses the issue of leadership and what it should look like in the church. Now, if you've been following this series, you'll know that the letter is addressed to a group of people who have been scattered right throughout the provinces of Rome due to severe persecution. They are fearful for their lives. These people are looking over their shoulders. They're scratching their head, pondering, what does it look like to be a Christ follower in these circumstances? Now, I think that Peter makes it clear here in chapter 5 that in times of suffering and trial, leadership is absolutely crucial. And special responsibility rests on Christian leaders to be shepherds of God's flock flock at all times, but particularly in these difficult times. In the NIV, the version that was read today, verse 1 starts by saying, to the elders among you. But I actually think that version omits a, a word that's pretty important that isn't omitted in other translations. For example, in the NASB, it starts with the word, therefore. Now, someone taught me once, when you see the word, therefore, you've got to ask the question, what is it there for? And it's usually there because it's linking one part of Scripture with the next part of Scripture. And that's exactly what's happening here in this part of the letter. 
In the previous chapter, bearing in mind that when this was written, it didn't have chapters and verses, it was a letter, it was talking about suffering for being a Christian. Let me read the end of the last chapter to you, verse 19. It says, So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Verse 1 of chapter 5, Therefore, to the elders among you, I appeal to you as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering, and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed, be shepherds of God's flock. In other words, leaders are there to help God's people to live for him, regardless of the circumstances that they find themselves in. Now, I love reading on books on leadership. I love teaching on leadership. It's something I want to grow in. It's something I want to get better at. It's something that I'm passionate to see done well in the church. I believe that leadership can profoundly shape our lives in a positive way when it's done well, but it can profoundly shape our lives in a negative way when it's done poorly. One of the reasons I'm passionate about leadership uh, in the church is that I've personally seen and experienced the hurt that occurs when leadership is done poorly. And I'm determined for that not to be replicated here at Follow Church. Uh, Church leadership around the world uh, really has a credibility issue, doesn't it? When we read the stories of manipulation and excess and particularly abuse, there's a problem with credibility in the church. People outside of the church look at church leaders now with uh, cynicism. You know, years ago, they'd look at church leaders with respect. They'd go to church leaders for advice. Now they're cynical, thinking, what is the motivation of these leaders who at times have done so much harm? And so my prayer at this church is that we would see a leadership team that is godly, transparent, bold, courageous, and Christ-centered to show our community what Christian leadership can look like. Because it's a tragedy to see what's happened, but I also see it as an opportunity to show something different to show what leadership can look like when we follow the example of Christ and when we live out God's word. And the truth is that it should be different to what people encounter in other parts of the world. It should be something that's radically countercultural. I think one of the great dangers of church leadership that I've seen emerging over the last few years is the tendency and the temptation to bring the leadership models of the world and plonk them into the church. And instead of looking like the bride of Christ, what we end up looking like is the corporate world around us. Churches are full of boards and visionaries who call all the shots, manipulating, abusing, dominating people until they get their way. We hear stories of pastors becoming very wealthy like CEOs chasing the quote-unquote blessing of God for their ministry in what we know as the prosperity doctrine. We see other churches with celebrity-type pastors and that kind of culture where the pastor's placed up on a pedestal and they have their own TV shows and billboards and private jets and luxury homes and no matter what they say or preach or teach, they can't be questioned because once again, quote unquote, they're the Lord's anointed. And for me, I don't know if you're picking up the cynicism in my voice, but I think that's rubbish. And I think that all of that is incredibly unhealthy. And when I look at God's word, it's very clear that it's incredibly unbiblical. Jesus' example And God's word should shape our idea of leadership, not the patterns of the world around us. Peter, who wrote this letter to the exiles, was someone that we might consider a chief elder. He was one of Jesus' three closest disciples. In verse 1, it said he witnessed Christ's sufferings. In other words, this guy had journeyed intimately with Christ. 
He was there during his life. He was there at his death. He was there to witness the resurrection. He was there at the ascension into heaven. This guy had seen it all. And so in many ways, from an earthly mindset, you kind of expect him to stamp his authority in a letter like this, to kind of puff out his chest and say, well, I'm the professional elder here. I've done it all. I've been doing this for years. Now you listen up and I'll tell you how it's going to be done. But when you look at the way he approaches his letter, you see that he doesn't do that. He doesn't put himself up on a pedestal. Instead, he places himself amongst the people. This is one of the attitudes that makes Christian leadership so different to the world around us. I love the way Peter starts his letter. He appeals to these other leaders um, to which he would have a lot more experience, not from a place of superiority, but as fellow elders. What we see in his life, what we see in this letter, and what we see in his example is an example of leadership with great humility. And I think this passage has so much to teach us, not just for leaders, but for every Christian person. And so today, I've broken the passage down into two main parts. The first part is what you should expect from your leaders. And we're going to spend most of the time there because we want you to know from the word what it teaches about leadership and what it should look like in the church. And as a congregation and a membership, we would expect that you would keep us accountable to that. The second part that I want to break it down to is what your leaders should expect from you. And so what should you expect from your leaders? What should your leaders expect from you? Here at Follow, we have a leadership structure that we believe closely reflects what we see in Scripture. We have elders and we have deacons and we have a congregation who also input into matters of church life. Presently, we have a group of eight qualified men in the roles of elders and we have ten men and women in the roles of deacons. Now, the elders, for those who aren't aware, is simply what we call the oversight team. Their role includes governing the affairs of the church, prayer, teaching of the word, church discipline, leadership and vision. The deacons are what we call the management team and they work with the elders in providing leadership for the church and their role includes pretty much everything to do with the day-to-day running of the church. Now the passage that we're reading today is actually addressing the elders and that level of leadership. Now the word elder in the New Testament is an interchangeable word. It's the same word used uh, for elder, for bishop, for overseer and for pastor. So when you hear any of those words is talking about the same leaders. And this passage, along with many others in the Bible, make it clear how they should lead. And in verse 2, it starts by simply saying this. It says, Be shepherds of God's flock that's under your care. Now, we don't really connect with the occupation of a shepherd these days. Anyone here a shepherd boy? No one, no shepherds here today. And so we find it very hard in our culture to connect with what a shepherd would be like. We think of a baby-faced shepherd. We've seen him paintings or pictures, you know, with rosy cheeks and a little beard, nearly fell off the step, and uh, and like a staff that's really smooth that you'd never get splinters and they're kind of cuddling a little baby lamb and we think, oh, isn't that cute? I'd love to be a shepherd. But the truth is the role of a shepherd couldn't be further from what I just described. These predominantly men back in that day would work in the elements and they would be freezing conditions with rain, hail, and storms. At the other end of the spectrum, they would work hour after hour in searing heat with the sun beating down on them hour after hour. To be a shepherd was a tough job. And their main role, really their only role, role was to protect the sheep. Now, if you know much about sheep, you'll know that they're pretty helpless. They're seriously helpless to the predators that just look at them and see a really good lamb cutlet. 
Uh, they really have no physical attributes to protect themselves except if a predator choked on their wool. Like they are completely helpless to the predators. And because of that, they become a target for all sorts of predators. Now in biblical times, in biblical lands, where these shepherds were working, there was pretty much any predator you can imagine. There were wild dogs and wolves and lions and tigers and bears. And the shepherds were constantly on guard protecting the sheep. And they were willing to put themselves between the predator and the sheep. In fact, these shepherds were willing to lay their life down if need be to protect their sheep. That's why Jesus is called the good shepherd because he lays his life down for us, for his people. And at night time, they had a pen and it was kind of had three sides on it. And then there was a gate and that shepherds at night would actually lay in front of the gate so that if a predator came, they would be woken before they could get in to attack the sheep. It was an incredibly tough job. In fact, King David, who started as a shepherd boy in 1 Samuel 17, tells Saul that when he worked as a shepherd boy guarding his father's sheep, if a lion or bear came and took off with the sheep in its mouth, he would run after it and he'd grab the sheep out of its mouth and he'd save it. Now, if that was me, I'd probably say, you naughty lion, you keep that one and I'll look after these ones, but just don't come back again. But no, no. King David, he would run after the lion, he'd rip the sheep out of its mouth, and then he'd belt the lion, and then he said if the lion turned back on him, he'd grab it again and he'd strike it dead. Now that's pretty tough. That's pretty brave. That's not a profession for the weak or for the lighthearted. And this is exactly how Peter describes leadership in the church. And the reason why it becomes evident later in the passage in verse 8. It says, your enemy, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And I have a photo this morning that I'm going to get up on the screen of what I think is the most magnificent animal on the planet. It's not the aliens there, it's coming up. There it is. There, right there is the most magnificent animal on the planet. That's our uh, bull terrier pup called Darcy. And uh, if you go to the next picture, he even wears a tie. And um, I'm showing that for no reason except to brag about my dog. Um, but I used to think that was the most magnificent um, creature on the planet right there, a lion. I love lions. When I get to heaven, I want to have half a dozen of them lying around with the lambs and, and having a great time. But I love lions because they're so big and they're so powerful and they've got muscles rippling over muscles. They are brave and bold. We know them as the king of the jungle. And they're incredible animals. But they also have a fierce side as well, as you'll see at the last photo. They have a fierce side to them. You don't want to get in their way. Have you ever been to the zoo when a lion roars? It's like, I can't do justice. But the whole ground shakes. I remember when Lenny was a little guy, I took him to the zoo and they were fixing up the lion enclosure. And so they had them in a temporary enclosure and it was really close to the wire fence. And just as we got there, I couldn't wait to see the lions. As just as we got there, it just went, Rawr! and Lenny nearly had a heart attack. And I don't think he's ever wanted to see a lion since. But they are big and powerful and they are fierce. And they will devour anything in their way, including sheep. Peter says that the devil is like a prowling lion, a roaring lion, prowling around looking for someone to devour. Church, we need to understand that we face a real enemy. He's not the one with the pitchfork and the red horns. 
He's not the one that represents a, a pretty pathetic footy team in the AFL. He's a different one. Uh, he's a real enemy. Uh, and we need to take him seriously. John 10.10, Jesus says that he comes to steal. He comes to kill. And he comes to destroy. He's like a roaring lion. If you've ever seen a lion hunt, you'll probably know that they don't usually attack from the front. They usually prowl and they stalk and they sneak up on their prey and they try and grab them when they're not ready. They often hunt at water holes or places where the prey will be distracted, but they're also opportunistic. So they will attack any time an opportunity arises. Uh, I never, don't know if you've ever watched them hunting a pack, but you'll watch them chasing like a, a herd of wildebeest or something and you'll see their eyes scanning the pack. And the first thing they try and do is they try and identify the weak and the young and the vulnerable. And the first thing they try to do is they try and isolate that one bit of prey from the pack because they know that when they do, it's an easy kill. This is a great description of the strategies of the devil that we need to be aware of. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 says that the devil tries to outwit us. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 11 says, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. He is scheming and plotting against our lives. And just as a lion hunts, the devil will try and attack us in sneaky ways that we don't see coming. He will often target us in the tough times of life, in the dark times where we're lonely, flat, or having doubts and fears. Most lion attacks actually happen after dark. They love it in the dark and the devil's the same. He often targets us when we're distracted and let in the things of this world. They creep into our lives. And his number one strategy is to still get us out of a community like this. He hates the fact that we're in a transformative, encouraging, life-giving community. And the first thing he will try and do is isolate us through unforgiveness or offense or disappointment or poor leadership. He'll do whatever he can to get you out of a community like this because he knows when he does, you're an easy kill. We need to be aware that we have a real enemy who has real schemes and he's attempting to steal, kill and destroy your life and my life. And it sounds kind of scary, doesn't it? I don't want you to go home terrified. (gasps) Where's the devil? He's going to get me. Because it sounds really scary, but something hit me this week as I was studying this passage. And it was the word like. Peter says he prowls around like a roaring lion. He doesn't say anywhere that he is a roaring lion. Isaiah chapter 14 talks about the kingdom of Babylon. And you'll see in the second last verse of this passage that Peter refers to Rome as Babylon as well. In scripture, Babylon is really just representative of the Antichrist, the kingdom of darkness, the representative of Satan. And Isaiah 14 talks about Babylon wanting to ascend to heaven and become, here's this word again, like the most high. He wants to ascend to heaven and become like the most high, only to be cast down, defeated and destroyed. In verse 16 of Isaiah chapter 14, It says, those who see the king of Babylon cast down, they stare at you. They ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made the kingdoms tremble? Is this really the man who made the world a wilderness, who overthrew its cities and would not let his captives go home? I think this is a picture of what it's going to be like when Jesus returns and when he destroys Satan once and for all. I think we're going to see him and we're going to think, is that really him? 
Is that the enemy that destroyed so many lives? Is that the enemy that deceived so many people and dragged them away from a life-changing relationship with God? Is that really him, the one who held people captive in their sin? Is that really the devil who seems so big to us sometimes, so powerful, so scary, and yet is actually kind of pathetic? So the Bible teaches that the devil's an imitator. He's a counterfeit. He's the great deceiver. And Peter says that he prowls around like a roaring lion. Revelation chapter 5 tells us Jesus is a roaring lion. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the real deal. And the role of the shepherd, the elder, is to stand between the enemy and the sheep and to point the sheep to Jesus, who isn't like a roaring lion. He is a roaring lion. He isn't like the Most High. He is the Most High. And he says, if I am for you, who can be against you? In me, you are forgiven. In me, you are victorious. In me, you are more than a conqueror. In me, you are an overcomer. In me, you have hope. In me, you have strength. In me, you have life. In me, your eternal destination is secure. Any shepherd who doesn't point you to Jesus is not a shepherd at all. One of the most stunning things about Jesus' character and his leadership is that he's so balanced in the way he leads. He's a roaring lion, but at the same time, he's the lamb who was slain. Jesus demonstrates incredible balance in his leadership. He's got this fierce conviction, standing up for what he believes in, turning over the tables in the temple, speaking truth whenever he needed to. But at the same time, he's got this incredible compassion. Boldness and meekness, authority and humility, strength. And yet stunning sacrifice. He's the lion who roars. And he's the lamb who was slain. It's incredible. Christ is looking for leaders in his church who lead in a similar way. That have great balance in their leadership. There will be times in church life where leaders have to be fierce and bold like a lion. They'll need to stand between you and the enemy and fight on your behalf. There will be times when leaders will have to speak into your life things you don't want to hear things that are hard to hear. And they'll speak those things with boldness and conviction because they're doing it as a way of protecting you and loving you. But there'll be other times where they'll wrap their arms around you and they'll journey with you with some of the most immensely painful times in life. They'll encourage you and they'll help you to heal. And this is what makes Christian leadership such a massive responsibility, but at the same time such an immense privilege. So it goes without saying that if the enemy's after the sheep, he's going to be first after the shepherds. And unfortunately, over the years, we've seen many pastors, many Christian leaders fall. And Peter warns them not to fall for some of the snares of the evil one. I've met pastors before that seem to lead just out of this sense of duty. Like, oh, I'm stuck in this now, I'm obliged, and I guess I just have to do it, and I just go through the motions. And there's no passion, there's no energy, there's no excitement about the things of God. They just go through the motions. I've met others that seem to be leading just for personal gain. They go into ministry to make money and to uh, rip people off. And, you know, you you spend a certain amount of money, you can get a little jar of holy water and all this sort of stuff. And it's just so abhorrent to God that we would lead for that. If if we want to be uh, make money, then don't go into ministry. It's not why you do it. I've seen others that, that lead because they want a sense of power and control, thriving on manipulation. And Peter warns against this kind of leadership here in 
1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. As leaders, our reward is not primarily earthly, although there's some great moments in ministry. People are saved, people come to know Jesus, people grow in their faith, people are healed and transformed. That's, that's incredibly exciting and fulfilling as a leader. But our reward primarily as leaders is not earthly, but rather eternal. And it's a crown of glory that will never fade away. If pastors and elders took this seriously, we would see the most extraordinary leadership imaginable. There's so much hurt in the church that could be avoided if people just understood this one concept, that the people in the churches we lead are not our people, they're his people. It's God's flock under our care. And he loves them more than we could ever imagine. Each person in our congregations are valued and cherished and loved immensely by the chief shepherd. And so if you have a desire to be a pastor or elder, then make sure you're willing to lay your life down for the sheep because one day you as an under-shepherd is going to stand before the chief shepherd and you're going to give an account for the way that you cared for those people. I think a lot of people look at people preaching and they think, that'd be fun, I'd love to do that. It's such a small part of a ministry role. And to lead God's people is to sacrificially lay your life down for them. And Jesus will keep us accountable to that. There seems to be many pastors and shepherds that just don't get it. And so when people leave their church, they cut them off like they're the enemy. And when a church moves into the region, they get all insecure. They manipulate their congregation to serve them and do what they want. And it's all examples of leaders who just don't get it. And if we were empowered by the Holy Spirit, following Jesus, living out God's word, that kind of leadership would never happen in the church. They're not our sheep, they're his. And our role is to love, serve, protect, and lead by example. It's one of the reasons that all of our elders are regularly involved at the food van. You will never go to the food van and there will be a night where one of our elders is not present. And the reason they're there is because they want to lead by example. And so they'll be setting up, packing up, They'll be praying. They'll be mingling with our guests. And I remember one of the first nights we run the van, a guy that had visited this church once came and he just got off the train and he walked past the van and he said to me, wow, I I can't believe you guys went ahead with this. I I know you talked about it. I didn't think you'd do it. And then he said, and I'm amazed that you're here. And I said, why is that? He said, well, you're the lead pastor. Why are you here setting up? And I thought to myself, where else would I be? You know, this whole idea of, Church leadership, you know, that if you, it means you've made it. And if you've made it, then people will just serve you. That's a, that's a worldly idea. It's not a godly idea. We lead in an upside down kingdom where Jesus says the king of the Gentiles lorded over people. And those who exercise authority call themselves benefactors, but you're not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. John Stott theologian says this he says the authority by which the christian leader leads is not power but love not force but example not coercion but reason persuasion leaders have power but power is safe only in the hands of those 
who humble themselves to serve. These are the things that you should expect from your leaders. These are the things that you should expect from your leaders. And these are the things that we want you as a congregation, as members of this church, to hold us accountable to. But in finishing today, what should your leaders expect from you? In verse 5, it says, In the same way, you who are younger, and that can be young in age, but also young in spiritual maturity, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, whether you're an elder or someone submitting to an elder, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. This week on Facebook, it's a great place to research when you're doing a sermon. I I saw a video, and it was a video of a road rage incident uh, in another state. I think it might have been in New South Wales. And this huge, big bloke. Uh, with, you know, a single on and tattoos and this really mean looking haircut. The kind of guy that when we're doing productive things, he's just at the gym all day, just doing this, just pushing weights. He was a big bloke. And the guy in front of him uh, had obviously cut him off or done something that, that made him angry and they'd pulled up at the lights. And this big, massive guy, looked like the Incredible Hulk, but not quite as green, got out of his car and he storms up to this front car ready to throttle the guy. And out of the car steps this old guy. And you sort of watch it, and you sort of watch it like this, thinking, this is not going to end well for this older gentleman. And so the the young guy storms up to the car, ready to belt him one, and before he knows it, the old guy landed 13 punches to his head. And and this old guy, this young guy's like this, and he staggers back to his car, he gets in, he drives away, and it was a great cure to road rage. I don't think he'll be doing it any time again soon, but uh, it was staggering. It was surprising. It was not what was expected. You looked at those two and you would think that the old guy was going to get beaten up by this young guy, but the opposite happened. And as I was thinking about this young guy, it reminded me of our attitude sometimes before God, that we would be arrogant to think that we're a match for God, that we can do things our own way, that we can be independent of him. And even if God's word says something, we think that we can do it a different way because we know better. It's the ultimate heavyweight versus the ultimate bantamweight battle. And I want to suggest to you today, if you're going to pick a fight with anyone or oppose yourself against anyone, make sure it's not God. Make sure you're not setting yourself up for a battle with God because it's a battle that you'll never win. God opposes the proud. Let that sink in for a moment. God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. And so we can be proud and we can set ourselves up for a battle with God and he will oppose us or we can humble ourselves before God and he'll pour out his grace upon our lives. I know where I'd rather find myself. Scripture teaches that all authority has been appointed by men, but ultimately it's been appointed by God. Whether it's the government, whether it's your boss, whether it's your parents, whether it's your church leaders. Romans 13.1 says everyone must submit themselves to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. In this letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, it says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. So what the Bible teaches is this, that God is sovereign over all creation and within his creation, he appoints leaders in different areas, government, uh, family, uh, church, life, And he says that you're to submit to your leaders. 
And so when we submit to our leaders, we're ultimately submitting to the authority and the reign and the rule of God himself. And that can be really hard when we talk about government. And it can be really hard when we talk about employers. It can even be hard when we talk about parents, particularly when we're having to submit to people that that don't follow God, don't live for him. And that can make us anxious at times. This passage says to cast that anxiety on God through prayer because he cares for you. But in the church, if leaders are leading in the way scripture teaches, if they are following Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, submitting to your leaders should be the easiest thing you'll ever have to do. It's like a sheep with the shepherds. That they submit to the shepherds because they know the shepherd is laying their life down for them. Knows that the shepherd will do anything to protect them, to love them and to serve them. And it should be the same in the church. If our church leaders need to demand respect from you, they're doing something wrong. Because you should look at their lives and go, you know what? There's something so godly about their lives. They are laying their life down for me. They care for me. They are serving. They are setting by example. I want to respect them. I'm willing to submit. I'm willing to follow because I know everything they do is for my benefit. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Leaders, humbly serve those who you are leading. And those who are being led, humbly submit yourselves to those who are leading you. It's a beautiful relationship of mutual respect. Let me finish with Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. It says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy. Do you hear that? Joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Can I encourage you today as we serve one another as leaders and as those being led, love and respect their leaders, I believe that we'll represent Christ to the world around us. And so can I encourage you? to pray for the leaders of this church that we would be wise and godly and bold and Christ-centered as we serve you and as we serve ultimately the Lord and as we watch over the flock that God has entrusted to us.